KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. California can't afford the president's unemployment enhancement. Would create a burn in the likes, which even a state as large as California can never absorb. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. SeaWorld suffers drastic revenue loss amid tourism downturn. Initially, they furloughed 95% of their employees, their upper-level executives took pay cuts. They put off four big um, attractions opening, including a, a big roller coaster in San Diego. How the battle is shaping up in the San Diego's race for mayor and Balboa Park's Museum of Man becomes the Museum of Us, and it's more than just a name change. That's ahead on Midday Edition, but first, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. Governor Gavin Newsom today warned that California has no money to provide the 25% contribution to weekly unemployment benefits called for by President Trump in his executive orders issued over the weekend. And for the state to absorb $700 million per week, potentially close to $3 billion per week, when, not if, uh, the identified $70 billion fund the president is looking to draw down from would create a burn in the likes which even a state as large as California can never absorb uh, without, again, massive cuts to important services or further burdening as we say in this slide, businesses and individuals. Newsom also said it's possible the state's share would rise to $2.8 billion per week should federal reserves fall below a certain amount. On another critical issue, Newsom said he is working with other state leaders to extend the moratorium on evictions for renters and homeowners in California. The ban on evictions is scheduled to end in a little over a week from now without an extension. Newsom wants to push that deadline deadline back toward at least the end of August. The governor also addressed a, quote, little bit of trouble over delivering accurate numbers on COVID-19 cases and deaths. In related news, Dr. Sonia Angel is out as the top public health official in California. Replacing her are doctors Sandra Shuri as acting health director for the State Department of Public Health and Dr. Erica Pan as acting public health officer. With theme parks closed by the pandemic for months, no one was expecting good news in SeaWorld's second quarter economic report. But the actual numbers are about as bad as bad can get. Both revenue and attendance fell 96% at SeaWorld's 12 parks across the country. Only nine have since reopened as San Diego's SeaWorld remains shuttered. Joining us is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. She covers tourism and the hospitality industry. Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what this 96% drop means in actual decreased revenue? What are the actual numbers? So um, during this 
quarter, that was April, May, and June, which is a very critical time for the theme park industry because you're just heading into a really crucial summer season. So for those three months, their revenue was 18 million. Um, a year ago, the same time, it was 406 million. Oh. So you can see what a huge difference that is. And SeaWorld Entertainment has 12 parks, including um, SeaWorld San Diego and its Aquatica Park in Chula Vista. So they shut down all the parks in mid-March. In June, they started opening their parks in Texas and Florida. So they started getting some attendance, some revenue, and of course, San Diego, um, zero, because we still don't know in California when theme parks will be allowed to open. So that's why you had such little revenue and such little attendance. And what's been the reaction of the financial markets to this news? Was this incredible drop expected? Yeah, this was expected. So I mean, I mean, Disney just recently reported billions of dollars in losses. Um, you can expect the same from Universal. So this isn't unexpected. And and SeaWorld is doing what you'd expect. It's raising money through issuing um, high interest corporate debt so that it has cash on hand. It's so far done more than um, $700 million worth of that. Um, it did it in April and it did it again just about a week ago. So it can prop up the company while it navigates this difficult terrain. And they also, of course, they did what you'd expect. Initially, they furloughed 95% of their employees, their upper level executives took pay cuts. They put off four big um, attractions opening, including a, a big roller coaster in San Diego. They put off the opening of those until um, next year. You should note they, they mentioned today that they still owe, they still have about 40 to $50 million in unpaid um, bills on those, those attractions because they, the, they didn't have the revenue to, to pay that off. The SeaWorld parks that are open, what kind of business are they doing? They don't break out attendance for any of their parks, so we don't know how many people are coming. But what they did say today was between the end of June and August 2nd, from when they started to open, they saw about an average 15% increase in attendance. It's still, though, I'm sure, you know, we can see from the numbers, it's still um, very little. So it's hard to know how well they're doing. And then one of those parks in Virginia, they only let them, the state of Virginia only lets them have 1,000 people in the park at a time. So they're at very reduced numbers. And they acknowledge today that they would have to do about 40% of the business they did last year to just start to break even, you know, not make, not be profitable, but to actually break even. So they, they really obviously need San Diego to open, but they also need the numbers in the coronavirus pandemic to get better because they're having to do, you know, much reduced capacity, not open every day of the week. And then before you know it, the summer season will be over. Have any of the other major attractions in San Diego released financial statements reflecting losses due to the pandemic? Um, we don't know really about Legoland. That's owned by a company called Merlin Entertainments. And again, they wouldn't break it down by by park, so we wouldn't know. Um, but obviously, you know, Legoland itself has been closed since mid-March and, and chomping at the bit to um, reopen. The USS Midway reopened, but I, I don't know if they've released any kind of numbers. And of course, the museums, they were supposed to open and then, they, then that was shut down again. So, so we really, yeah, that we don't really have much in the way to report. And then of course, there's Belmont Park in Mission Beach. 
they started to open their rides, but they weren't supposed to. They got shut down by the county. So they just, but they can stay open because they have people coming through for restaurants and carnival type games, that sort of thing. But so, I mean, everybody's, everybody's taking such a huge hit. So SeaWorld is really the only amusement theme park that we have any real numbers on in San Diego. How can a theme park come back after this incredible slump? I mean, is there a chance that they won't? No one is talking, no one's talking about that they won't. And that's why I think that money that they're raising um, is so important. Um, and, and obviously, um, in California, they haven't reopened, but because they have already been able to open their parks in, in states like Texas and Florida, they are getting some revenue. Of course, n- not enough, as I said, to break even, but I, I think they can survive. And what's one odd thing that I was surprised to hear today was um, here they're struggling just to get by. And yet they said that money that they raised, that maybe some of their rivals or maybe just other theme park companies that maybe can't weather the storm, they said that this could be a strategic opportunity for them to maybe acquire a hotel or a struggling park, and then they could remake it into um, one of their SeaWorld-branded parks known as Sesame Place. So they're even as they are struggling to survive, they're looking at opportunities, you know, fire sales that, that might help them get through this storm and come out the other end even more profitable. Wow. Well, I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg, and thank you for that, Lori. Thank you. Scientists have only been studying COVID-19 for less than a year, which is why information about it continues to change and evolve. KPBS reporter Beth Accomando has always been fascinated by the brain. So she asked UC San Diego Health neurointensivist Dr. Navaz Karangia about how COVID can affect the brain. So I'm someone who's always been fascinated by how the brain works, and I tend to gravitate to pop culture that explores themes involving loss of identity and mind control and, yes, the zombie apocalypse. So this also means that I love picking the brains of neuroscientists like Navaz Karangia of UC San Diego Health. Now, you specialize in something called neurocritical care. So explain what that means. I'm an ICU doctor that cares for patients with severe brain and spinal cord injuries like big strokes, brain hemorrhages, brain infections, uh, trauma, tumors. So I've done four years of specialty training in neurology and another two subspecializing in neurocritical care. And now at UCSD, I lead a dedicated team of neurosurgeons, stroke doctors and nurses in our neuro ICUs to help our patients recover. So COVID-19 is what's known as a novel coronavirus, and that means scientists have only been able to study it for a relatively short time. So remind people what the challenge is for scientists and how information can change as there are more patients to study and more time to see what the longer term effects are. Yeah, so any new disease is challenging because there's limited data at first, right? And that may not show the whole picture until more data comes in we need to document data from thousands of patients before we can trust the patterns we're seeing. And normally it takes years to design studies, recruit patients and perform the study in a scientifically rigorous and ethical way. 
But now you've got a highly infectious disease that progresses rapidly over days to weeks. So we've got to accelerate that research yet maintain doing it in an accurate and ethical way. We also have to be able to identify patients with the disease, which was initially really challenging because of limited testing. Um, the longer term effects will take time to discover. Uh, so, for example, during the Spanish flu pandemic of the early 20th century, nobody knew what the effects would be on babies. So we needed decades of follow up to discover what those effects were. And COVID has only been around for less than a year. So decades down the line, we may still be gathering more information. And how does this complicate things in the sense that People seem distrustful of information, but part of the issue is that information is changing as scientists and doctors learn more. So how do you grapple with that and, and try to get information out there that people will trust? Yeah, the proliferation of media made it challenging even before the pandemic for people to know what was true. But what mitigated that uh, is usually scientific studies get done over years time. Doctors and scientists discuss, agree, find flaws, and then with enough similar studies, distill those findings to a recommendation and pass that on to the public. So despite there being many non-scientific opinions floating around on the internet, it used to be pretty easy for your doctor to identify the reasonable conclusion. What makes COVID different is how rapidly it spreads and kills people. So especially at the beginning, there was no time for those years long scientific studies to happen. So it is understandable, I think, at the, uh, at the beginning when there was little data, conclusions were drawn that needed to be revised as more data came in. And that made people question the conclusions we have. And questioning is good as long as when a solid pattern does emerge, like masks decreasing transmission, we need to acknowledge that and put it into action. And that can be hard for people who may have jumped the gun or taken an early stand. So it's easy to see how as we learn new things that contradict what we knew before, that this could sow distrust among the public. UCSD has seen a steady flow of COVID patients. What are those numbers like and how does that compare to anything else you've experienced? We've been caring for about 30 to 50 COVID inpatients per day since March, about 25 of which are on a ventilator. In comparison, during flu season, we have on average three patients on a ventilator per day. So no, this is not like anything we've seen before. When this began, people were referring to COVID as something like the flu. Why has this comparison proven to be inaccurate? And what would you say is a better way to look at the disease? Well, it's inaccurate because everybody has some immunity to the flu because we've all gotten the flu at some point or had the vaccine or both. Uh, this means that when we get it again, our symptoms may be so mild, we may not even notice it. But because the world has very little immunity to this new virus, many more people are becoming symptomatic with more severe disease. And that may be one of the reasons why the current US mortality rate for recorded COVID cases is 3.3% and for flu is 0.1%. Uh, another reason why COVID might be deadlier is because on autopsies, we not only see evidence of the virus in the lungs, but we also see it in the brain, kidneys, heart, intestines, and even the lining of the blood vessels everywhere in the body, which can lead to life-threatening clots. 
that that could explain why patients with severe COVID are sustaining damage to all their organs much more than flu patients. And this kind of brings us to the part of the discussion that I am most interested in, which is how COVID affects the brain, because this is something that initially was not being talked about. So what are the ways that COVID can attack the brain and how does it affect the brain and nerves? The thing that's tragic and fascinating about COVID is it can affect the brain and nerves in so many different ways. For example, the damage it causes to blood vessels I mentioned earlier can lead to strokes and brain hemorrhages in up to 6% of hospitalized patients. Low oxygen levels caused by the lung and heart injury can damage the brain and the inflammation itself from the infection can affect the brain and the nerves causing confusion and delirium in the majority of patients with severe COVID. It can also directly infect the nervous system. In uh, mild cases, it can cause loss of taste or smell, or in severe cases, it can cause meningitis. We've also seen it cause an autoimmune reaction where the body's antibodies to the virus accidentally attack the brain and nerves, and that can cause life-threatening issues like brain swelling and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And finally, there are psychiatric symptoms that are being reported. We're seeing people with hallucinations, even psychosis, uh, even after mild COVID disease, um, which could be from brain involvement. And then there's the anxiety, depression, and PTSD due to the psychological trauma of being hospitalized with a frightening disease. Yeah, so this proves to be more scary than a horror film or than zombies themselves. So. Is this disease seeming to do something that's new and that's never been seen before? Or is it just affecting the body in ways that are causing these neurological problems? So it's not that these things have never been seen before. We've seen them to very small degrees in, uh, in other viral infections. But I think what's different about COVID is you've got no immunity in most people. And so the effects are uh, are proving to be very severe and much more common um, in the nervous system than we're used to seeing in other viruses because most people have some immunity to those viruses. One of the unique things about COVID though is that effect on the blood vessel lining that causes clots everywhere in the body. This is not something we've seen uh, from common viruses before, and that's why the effects of COVID seem to be uh, more devastating and causing more widespread organ damage than we're used to seeing with other viruses. So can you talk about some of the specific neurological problems that COVID can cause, some specific examples of things you've seen or that have been documented? The neurological problems related to COVID can range from mild, like headache or loss of taste and smell, which are very common in symptomatic patients, to more concerning things like difficulty concentrating or thinking, which people are calling brain fog, uh, to confusion and delirium. And then there are the life-threatening complications that we've seen, uh, strokes from those blood clots I talked about, brain swelling, seizures, coma from infection and inflammation of the brain, uh, paralysis from autoimmune attacks on the nerves. Uh, what I'm seeing most commonly is delirium in the very sick COVID patients, and we've seen a number of strokes as well, both of which can have permanent consequences. 
And although they happen more frequently, the more severe the patient's COVID symptoms, it's important to note that these neuroemergencies can even happen to patients with mild respiratory symptoms. We've seen some young patients with minimally symptomatic COVID with no stroke risk factors come in with devastating large strokes. And what kind of symptoms are there in the sense of how can you tell if you might be having some of these neurological complications due to COVID? So one of the ways to remember the symptoms of stroke is the mnemonic B fast. B for sudden balance problems, E for sudden eye or visual problems, F for facial drooping, A for arm weakness, S for speech problems, and T is time to call 911 because we have excellent treatments for stroke that can return up to 70% of patients back to a functional life, but they only work if they're started within hours of symptom onset. Uh, two million neurons are dying every minute you're having a stroke. So that's why it's so important to call 911 immediately. Uh, and that's not an exhaustive list of all the symptoms that could be indicative of neuro complications. Uh, if you see somebody convulsing, confused, sleepier than usual, with a bluish tinge to their face, or just generally not acting like their normal self, call 911. So are the neurological complications coming mostly from or by COVID causing strokes and, and, you know, depriving the brain of oxygen or does the virus actually just directly attack brain cells? So the problem with this virus is it can do both. So there are plenty of reports of meningitis and uh, encephalitis or inflammation of the brain from the virus infecting the brain. Um, we also know that even in minimally symptomatic patients, uh, when they uh, have an MRI, they can demonstrate evidence of inflammation of the brain, even if they don't have neurologic symptoms. So the exact number of patients that's, uh, that are having um, neuroinvasion is unclear, but because an early symptom of COVID is commonly the loss of smell and taste, which uh, is carried by the nerve from the nose that goes directly to the brain, the olfactory nerve, we are concerned that direct invasion of the neurosystem is happening in a much larger percentage of patients than uh, we would normally expect with, with, a, with a virus like this. The stroke complications are happening in about 6%, um, depending on the study that you read, of hospitalized COVID patients. And they happen more frequently the more severe the COVID is. So uh, those um, complications, although less frequent, are, uh, are, are pretty devastating. So for you as a scientist, the complications coming from a stroke are kind of a very predictable sort of thing that you've seen before, but the way in which the virus may be affecting the brain cells directly is the part that's very new and kind of uncharted territory? I wouldn't say it's uncharted territory because we do know of other viruses that uh, that invade the brain and some even more aggressively like the herpes virus. Um, but it's because of the large number of patients that are getting COVID, we are seeing many more patients with neuro complications than we do with say the flu or with other uh, viral infections. 
Now, another thing about COVID is I've read that about 80% of the people who get it will recover without excessive care. And it seems like this is kind of contributing to how potentially dangerous it is. So at this point in time, we don't yet know like what long-term effects there might be for people who may have even just had a mild case, correct? That's right. What's deceptive is even if you don't end up in the hospital for uh, your respiratory symptoms, you might have other neurologic symptoms that linger for a long time. After an initially mild COVID infection, many patients have described weeks to months of persistent fatigue or the inability to think clearly, loss of smell or taste, or other vague symptoms like intermittent tingling or erratic pulse or blood pressure. And on MRI, some patients with no symptoms except for loss of smell have brain inflammation. And for some of those patients, their symptoms are still ongoing. So we don't know how long they will last or what percentage of people will get them or whether there are other long-term effects. That's why there are studies going on to investigate those long-term effects. Uh, one is the COVID symptom study that you can sign up for online and tracks your symptoms through an app. There's another one in San Francisco that will track patients for two years. And there are neuro-COVID clinics now opening up to help patients. We have one at UCSD that patients can contact if they're experiencing any post-COVID neurosymptoms. So what might be the dangers of these neurological complications from COVID as we kind of move forward? For the more severe neural complications of COVID, like stroke or Guillain-Barre, the risk of death or permanent disability is very real. For example, with stroke, mortality is around 20% and permanent disability um, happens to about 50% of stroke survivors. With Guillain-Barre, up to 20% of patients are left with significant disability. And even if you don't have visible damage to the brain from COVID, just being in the ICU and being delirious puts you at high risk for what's called post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, which can lead to persistent fatigue, cognitive problems similar to Alzheimer's, and psychiatric problems like PTSD for years following discharge from the ICU. We know that these symptoms occurred in about 30% of hospitalized SARS patients, and one recent French study suggests it's occurring in around 30% of COVID patients requiring ICU care as well. There are also some psychiatric complications that have come from COVID. Can you discuss some of the specifics about that? Yes. So last month, there was a a publication describing multiple patients with otherwise mild COVID who experienced visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, OCD-like behaviors, uh, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, so this could be due to injury to the brain, or it could also be due to the very real psychological trauma of being hospitalized and isolated with a scary disease. A lot of the coverage of COVID talks about it in terms of numbers. How many might get sick? How many might die? And are these percentages large or small? But why should we care about this even if some of the numbers being discussed are not large? Although the percentages of people that are hospitalized and die of COVID may seem small, 
The problem is the total number of patients infected with COVID in the U.S. is very high, making the absolute number of patients that will develop neuro problems also very high. So according to the CDC, almost 5 million Americans have been infected and over 40,000 hospitalized. So if 6% of our hospitalized COVID patients suffer strokes, that's 2,400 patients having strokes. And if a third enter the ICU and half get picks, that's 6,000 people. So that's a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of money for rehab and nursing facility care that will be needed. So that's why it makes sense not to treat these complications after they occur, but to prevent yourself from getting COVID in the first place, which is why wearing your mask and social distancing is so important. Well, and it also seems like another potential thing to consider is that we don't know how many people who have come down with the disease might end up having long-term health issues that will have a burden on the healthcare industry in years to come. Absolutely. Um, you know, for a stroke, for example, we know that uh, the U.S. spends $34 billion per year on caring for stroke patients. So, Patients that suffer neurological complications of COVID, um, at least the more severe ones, may have similar disabilities requiring similar amounts of expensive care. So there is a big unknown as to uh, what amount of pain, suffering, and dollars this is going to cost. I'm going to bring a little pop culture into this because we did discuss World War Z, and its author Max Brooks talked about COVID when I interviewed him, and he described it as... COVID is like the slow-moving George Romero zombies. It's easy to underestimate them. Ebola was like the fast-moving ones that everybody was afraid of and were quick to kind of uh, mobilize against. So it seems like there's this kind of surreal quality to the current pandemic because so much of life still seems normal. But why should people take this disease seriously? It's true. So much seems normal until you or your loved one contracts it. People need to take this disease seriously because at best, you're asymptomatic but could give it to a vulnerable person who could die. And at worst, you might be one of the unlucky people who develops a disabling or lethal complication. And it's totally true that it's like the slow moving zombies. People are like, oh, I'm young, I'm healthy, I can prevent the zombies from catching me. That's there's the same misconception with COVID too that young healthy people don't get significant disease, but we have absolutely seen them get severe symptoms. I've seen fit 40 year old nurses and construction workers with no other medical problems die in front of me, and uh, that is the harsh reality of this disease. And for you personally, I mean, you you talk about having to witness somebody dying from this disease. How is this affecting you? So the emotional burden of seeing patients die and not be able to see their loved ones as they die is really uh, very distressing um, and has resulted in a lot of depression and anxiety among many of my colleagues. Uh, and it's also really scary because every day we know we're going into a high risk place where people may be infected. Our daily routine is totally disrupted. When we enter the hospital, we go through this gauntlet of questions to make sure we're not infected. We have to wear a mask and eye protection at all times. 
I'm using a Kleenex or my elbow to touch buttons and door handles. We have to stay three feet away from our colleagues. We can't eat or drink with them, which means we're doing a lot of our patient care over teleconference. We can't get really physically close to patients for a prolonged period of time who aren't wearing a mask. And when we see COVID patients, we have to wear head to toe protective gear. Uh, when I get home, I decontaminate in an outdoor shower as do many of my colleagues. And then I decontaminate all the items I brought home from the hospital and then wash all my clothes. So there's a lot of things that go into uh, staying safe. And for the nurses who have to be up close to their patients, it is really scary because they can't distance. And although we've been very lucky at UCSD that we've always had the appropriate PPE uh, and very few of our employees have gotten infected at work, it is still terrifying. I've had nurses uh, tell me that they cry every time they go home from work because they're scared of coming back. And as a scientist, how are you viewing the way the media and particularly social media are handling information? There seems to be quite a bit of misinformation out there, as well as people not trusting doctors, not trusting the CDC or the WHO, but believing in any study that might suggest a cure that somebody shares on social media. So do you feel that this kind of an atmosphere or mood is something new that you haven't seen before? Is it a challenge for you to get good information out there? So uh, it's not new, unfortunately. Um, during the Spanish flu pandemic, for example, people were also desperate. Some were hawking quinine as a treatment, which it's not uh, for the flu, and protesting against mandatory mask laws then as well. But as it became clear that quinine didn't work and mask wearing did, people eventually came around, as I'm optimistic they will today. So yes, it is a challenge to get good information out there because it takes time to do good studies and then get the answers out there in a way so people know they're legitimate. But what's important for people to understand is that scientists are still going through the process of doing those studies and we need patients help to participate in them so we can understand this disease. And just to briefly return to World War Z, was there anything in that book that you felt people could actually learn from or that was predictive of our current pandemic in a way that lends some insight into it? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things that Max Brooks got right in his zombie apocalypse book. So one of the most salient ones, I think, is because no one wanted to believe that a serious pandemic was occurring in the book. There was a delay in using the right tactics to combat it, which resulted in a lot of preventable death and suffering. So while COVID's not a zombie apocalypse, it would be great if we could learn from World War Z, take this pandemic seriously, and initiate the appropriate containment tactics to prevent it from snowballing. As opposed to the book, we don't have to flee to Canada to escape this pandemic. All we have to do is wear a mask and social distance. What do you think needs to be done moving forward? What kind of treatments are there or what kind of things are you seeing that might be helpful or hopeful to people? So I'll, I'll take your question in reverse, if you don't mind. Um, in terms of treatments for severe COVID, there are a number of promising medications under investigation, but of course the best treatment will be to prevent getting it in the first place. So there are multiple vaccine trials going on worldwide. Um, UCSD is participating in many of those medication and vaccine trials. 
for treatments for the neurologic complications, because these are all conditions we've seen before, we already have excellent treatments. For stroke, for example, we have clot-busting drugs and procedures to remove brain clots that can return folks to a functional life up to 70% of the time, as long as they reach the hospital within hours of their symptoms. And we also have excellent neurocritical care treatments for the other conditions, but to get them may require access to a hospital like UCSD that has neurocritical care resources and specialists. So moving forward, if we can all try to be patient and continue to wear our masks and social distance so we can slow the pace of infections, it will give us time to do the research, find out what really works, and help make sure there's an ICU bed for you or your family if you need it. This, I think, is a, is a team sport, one of my colleagues said. Team human against team virus. And the game is changing as we go on. But it's like that saying, united we stand, divided we fall. If we all work together, we can beat this thing. And because there's so much information out there and so many sources people can go to, how can people keep up with changing or updated information? And what would you suggest is a good way to kind of test the information or determine whether something is actually valid or worth listening to? Yeah, so for physicians, um, besides reading the literature as it comes out, a lot of us are constantly discussing what we are seeing in real time with our colleagues across the world. Uh, for the general public, the CDC and county websites on COVID-19 are pretty comprehensive and well updated. Uh, UCSD and other academic hospitals also have great COVID websites with a lot of resources and can direct you to local clinics, hospitals, and nurse lines where you can ask for help. Um, in terms of determining what uh, information is solid, the best way to figure this out is to ask your physician. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk about COVID and COVID in the brain. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Navaz Karangia speaking with Beth Accomando. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. He's been the frontrunner all along, endorsed by the San Diego Union-Tribune. He served in the job for a time and appeared to be cruising to victory. She is the political fighter who came from behind to eke out a primary victory and now has doubled up her opponent in the latest fundraising tally. Todd Gloria and Barbara Bree are staging remote campaigns to become San Diego mayor in these strange times. And joining me to examine the race in these dog days of August is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Mark. Thank you. 
Well, let's start with that headline on fundraising. Barbara Bree and her supporters are claiming a momentum shift with the report that she more than doubled Todd Glorious Hall from mid-February to the end of June. But those numbers are maybe a bit misleading, right? Well, if you're talking about whether she doubled Todd Gloria's fundraising, uh, that is slightly misleading um, because that would include Bree's own contribution of $150,000 in either loans or uh, donations to her own campaign. So um, her dollar figure, uh, just over $681,000, is more than twice Gloria's uh, dollar figure of uh, just over $289,000. It's a little less than twice if you subtract her own contributions, but ultimately what these numbers mean is that uh, Brie is continuing to uh, get support from her base of, you know, supporters, and she will have the resources that she needs to actually uh, do this campaign. The, the thing to remember about fundraising is it doesn't necessarily indicate how much support someone has in a community. It just means, you know, how much money they will have to spend on getting their message out on uh, TV ads and mailers and things like that. And in that regard, uh, you know, this is going to be a pretty um, competitive race. Um, we should also note that Gloria does have more cash on hand as of the closure of this financial reporting period, which is the end of June. And so we have two Democrats squaring off here, but Bree made it into the general election with a remarkable comeback after it looked like Republican Scott Sherman, her colleague on city council, had won following that March 3rd primary. How did she uh, overtake Sherman two weeks later? Yeah, it was just those daily counts that we were monitoring on the um, Registrar of Voters website um, as they updated each figure every day. Um, A lot of the late arriving votes were what trended toward Bree and pushed her into that second place uh, spot after Scott Sherman, uh, or ahead of Scott Sherman, rather. Um, She said, I talked to her on election night, and she said, you know, this is what she was kind of expecting, that um, Democrats and independents uh, were likely waiting to mail their ballots until the last minute, because if you recall at the time, um, we didn't know who was going to be the presidential uh, Democratic nominee. And so a lot was changing there. And it made it would make sense that a lot of people might have been kind of waiting to see who would drop out at the last minute and then mailing their votes, uh, you know, closer to Election Day. Ultimately, she got about 1200 more votes than Sherman. So it was definitely very close. Very close. Well, still, Todd Gloria was the clear vote winner. Do we have any reliable polling now in the mayor's race? I'm only aware of two polls that have been released publicly since the primary. Um, One of them came from the Lincoln Club, a conservative uh, political group, and it showed Brie and Gloria pretty much neck and neck. The Lincoln Club typically endorses Republicans, and they haven't endorsed anyone in the mayor's race officially. But if you read between the lines on a lot of the questions of this poll, and they released quite a bit of information about what they asked voters, um, if you also read the press release where, uh, you know, when they announced the results, it's pretty easy to... um, kind of interpret that they may not have endorsed Bria outright, but uh, she does appear to be their preferred candidate. Um, so, you know, reading those results, showing them neck and neck, you might, um, you might, you know, assume that or take those results with a grain of salt and assume that the Lincoln Club might have um, tried to craft their questions to make Bria a little bit stronger. Gloria released his own poll, also showing him uh, leading Bree by 15 percentage points. He, he got 41% and she got 
26% in this poll that was commissioned by his own campaign. That, of course, also you have to take with a grain of salt. Um, he didn't release the questions in that poll. It was just a summary of the breakdown of, of who supported him versus who supported her. Um, you know, he mentioned that Bree leads among Trump supporters, uh, which are a, a minority in the city of San Diego. Um, but, you know, maybe he's trying to kind of craft this narrative of, of tying her to Trump. So all of these um, polls that we have, you know, I haven't seen any from a, a news organization or a more neutral party. So, um, you know, the best poll we have to go after is is the March 3rd primary. And Gloria definitely beat Bree uh, pretty handily there. And both Gloria and Bree are Democrats, even though the office is technically nonpartisan. Any major specific issues where they disagree? You know, it's interesting. COVID-19 has completely up upended the campaign, um, up upended the issues that the candidates are talking about. But the points where they diverge are pretty much the same. Um, I would say housing is, is a major point of contention between the two of them. Gloria really embraces the yes in my backyard or YIMBY movement to build more homes, to pass policies that make building more homes a lot easier. Um, Brie walks a very fine line in this space. She never uh, outright opposes new housing or, you know, is, is very um, qualified whenever she talks about opposition to housing. And she points to votes where she's actually supported new housing on the city council. But at the same time, she also embraces the skepticism of growth and has voted against uh, some policies that would have made growth, uh, you know, easier and faster in San Diego. Um, she, she often pivots to the issue of short-term rentals, this sort of long-standing issue in San Diego that we haven't been able to figure out. Um, she said repeatedly that she would enforce the what she believes and the city attorney believes is a ban, existing ban on short-term rentals, things like Airbnb. Um, Gloria supports regulating them and licensing them. Um, so that's another issue where they disagree. And who knows what the future will be regarding that and several other issues. And that's one of the things I wanted to, to wrap with here. The challenges facing San Diego's next mayor, several seem obvious, starting with the pandemic slamming the economy and the city's budget, which by law has to be balanced each year, right? Yes, uh, and balancing the budget will be very hard for the next mayor, particularly because I think it's, uh, you know, what we're hearing from economists is that it'll likely be a couple of years before we can get our um, tourism and hospitality industry back up to where it was pre-pandemic. Um, which is a you know a big economic uh, driver driver in San Diego. Uh, the next mayor will have some reserves to draw fun from uh, in the city. Um, Faulkner, Mayor Faulkner, uh, left them mostly untouched in this current fiscal year. Um, but there are also structural problems that the city has had for many years and will continue to have into the future, even um, without the pandemic. Things like the infrastructure deficit, things like homelessness, uh, the lack of funding for affordable housing. So all of those things are going to be uh, a big challenge for the next mayor, regardless of who it is. Yes, well, it, uh, lots of challenges going forward here, the, all of them seeming to, re, to revolve around this pandemic, uh, unfortunately. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. As they gear up for this fall's elections, many states are looking at ways to keep the voting process secure from hackers, malware, and disinformation. So they're calling in the National Guard to provide cybersecurity expertise. From Denver, Megan Verley prepared this report for the American Homefront Project. We want to encourage folks to be able to exercise their right to vote. It is safe, it is secure, and it's something that we are protecting 
On the morning of Colorado's recent state primary, Denver County Clerk Paul Lopez stood in front of a mobile voting center to praise the lengths his office was going to to keep voters safe from COVID-19. Our elections personnel are wearing masks, they're sanitizing our stations. But literal viruses aren't the only ones election officials have to worry about. Behind the scenes, efforts are underway to make sure the computer systems elections rely on aren't compromised by bad actors. A Senate Intelligence Committee report last year concluded Russia targeted voting systems in all 50 states in 2016. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold says they're likely to try again. When we are in the COVID-19 crisis, there is a, a tendency to drop the ball on the fact that Russia is actively trying to undermine our democracy. Uh, and our partnership with the National Guard is just one of many things we do to make sure that Coloradans can have confidence in our election results. Colorado started working with the National Guard on election cybersecurity seven years ago, around the time it was moving to all-male ballots. This year's team is made up of a half dozen Guard members, including Captain Reese Watkins. I'm the Cyber Network Defense Manager for the Cyber Protection Team once before. Watkins is a programmer in his daily life. Others on the team work in corporate security and similar fields. He says they're used to operating in the private sector, not just on the heavily protected systems used by the military. Almost every single person on my team has a day-to-day job that we do this full-time. So it helps us stay in the current workforce and know exactly what's happening in real life. In general, the team's job isn't to fight threats, just to find them. That can be anything from someone spreading misinformation on social media to direct attacks on the state's crucial voter registration database. What they spot, they pass on to Colorado's own IT professionals to address. Captain Watkins says their real strength is as a set of fresh eyes searching for vulnerabilities. When you're looking at your home, right, you don't see very many things that are wrong until someone comes over and visits and they see something wrong with your house. You're like, wow, that uh, your window is broken. And you go, oh my gosh, I didn't even notice that. So that's kind of what we're there to do is just be another set of eyes. This year, more than 30 U.S. states have some sort of IT partnership with their National Guard to provide election support. Colonel George Haynes is chief of cyber operations at the National Guard Bureau in Washington, D.C., He says states and federal security agencies in general have been doing more to collaborate on cybersecurity since the last presidential election. We have seen an increase in partnership, an increase in information sharing, uh, an increase in um, working together through tabletop exercises, through uh, sharing of tactics, techniques, and procedures. And that's important, says Haynes, because the threats are just increasing. The cyber domain is maturing just like the other, you know, air, land, sea, space domains. While the Guard's role in election cybersecurity has been developing for many years and will continue into the future, it may be dwarfed this fall by their boots-on-the-ground operations. Many states are calling on their Guard to help with the physical challenges of conducting their elections during a pandemic. I'm Megan Verley in Denver. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. How does using marijuana after work hours affect your ability to do your job? The answer may surprise you. A new study from SDSU's Fowler College of Business focuses on how pot, whether used before, during, or after work, affects work performance. 
The study's author, SDSU management professor Jeremy Berner, surveyed 281 employees and their supervisors. He spoke with KPBS Evening Edition host Maya Trabolsi about what he found. Here's that interview. For this study, you recruited 281 employees and their direct supervisors through social media. Tell us about the parameters of the study and what concerns you were trying to address. We were trying to figure out whether or not cannabis says anything about an employee. So obviously, if you've been paying attention to the news at all over the last two or three years, we know that cannabis and its popularity has really exploded. You know, if you just look at organizations, they're literally spending hundreds of millions of dollars every single year testing applicants, testing employees, and we don't really know if there's a reason for them doing that. I mean, does it make sense? You know, if there were some employees, and yeah, it would make sense then to screen your applicants. But if employees are using cannabis on the weekend or after work and it's not impacting their work performance, then why would we as organizations or why would we as society outlaw these, this type of use? So what would you say are the benefits of after hours cannabis use in terms of productivity during the workday? What it seems like, you know, if you've had a really stressful day and you go home and maybe use cannabis to help you relax, well, then you're able to get a better night's sleep and you actually wake up the next morning feeling more energized. And so that can then show up in your workplace performance. Now, you contrast that with somebody that may be waking up and using cannabis, and then they're starting their day with kind of a diminished state of mental capacity, or, you know, they might be distracted. That's different. But if you're using it afterward, then maybe it's just helping you relax. So, doctor, would you equate it with de-stressing after a long day with a glass of wine? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. But unlike, say, using wine or other alcohol where you might have two or three glasses of wine or if you have too many beers and you wake up with a hangover and you don't feel particularly good, and that might show up in your performance, cannabis, and especially you know, some of the participants that were in this study, were using edibles and using them at the end of the night so that they could actually sleep better. And then they actually woke up without the hangover that you might find with alcohol but feeling more energized because you had this really nice night of sleep. If you're using cannabis for the job or while on the job, you know, while you're at work or maybe on your lunch break, that actually negatively affected your performance across several different dimensions as rated by your supervisor. As a social scientist, what surprised you the most? I think the most surprising finding was the fact that afterward cannabis use didn't relate to a single form of performance. So we had five different measures of performance, each completed by the supervisor. And if you're just simply using cannabis after work, it did not relate to any of those things, even though, again, you know, we've got these general policies that says, hey, you can't be using these substances whenever. But when you look at the actual, you know, more fine-grained analysis, using it after work didn't relate to any form of performance, none. Like, I, so for me, I mean, I was completely caught off guard by that. You say that organizations are spending billions of dollars each year to counter what they see as a problem. Is there a message here for organizations to consider in their policies about substance use during work hours? Yes, I think so. And especially, you know, if employees or applicants start to challenge some of these policies in the court of law, an organization is going to have to actually show, hey, this is a valid requirement of our work. And this study, at least, you know, from an outsider's perspective, might cast some doubt on that. So uh, it definitely would behoove an organization to look at this a little bit more closely. And if nothing else, you know, don't make these overly broad generalizations. 
you talked a little bit about the timing of cannabis and in relation to drug testing. What are the challenges that organizations with strict substance use policies face when determining when cannabis was actually used, whether it was during the day or after hours? Well, that's the thing, right, that organizations are faced with right now because your traditional drug test, you know, a urinalysis or a blood analysis, it's not going to tell you when they used it. You know, when you send an applicant for a drug test or when you send a current employee that maybe had an accident, you know, on the job to get a drug test, it's not going to tell you, okay, this person used cannabis, you know, an hour before their work shift or maybe used it, you know, right before that accident occurred. It's just going to say whether or not these things are in his system or her system. And so, you know, there's a big debate and an open question about whether or not that's a valid way to assess employees or applicants or whoever it may be. What do you hope that this research will help accomplish? More than anything, I just hope that we as a society, as government agencies, as organizations, rethink some of the stereotypes that we have. Some of them might be valid, but we should actually be making our decisions and policies based on actual data, not based on lingering stereotypes you know, from 20 or 30 years ago. Dr. Jeremy Berner, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, my pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. The coronavirus pandemic and racial justice movement are changing the way we live and the way we think about the future. In Balboa Park, both of those profound events are changing the way we think about the past. The 105-year-old Museum of Man is now the Museum of Us, and curators say it's more than just a name change. Although closed during the pandemic, the museum has been carrying out its mission of decolonizing its collection and exhibits. Joining me is Micah Parson. He's CEO of the Museum of Us. And Micah, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Maureen. I'm really happy to be here. The Museum of Man has been such a fixture in Balboa Park for generations, but I've learned that museum officials have actually been thinking about changing the name for years. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's very much the case. It really started in the late 80s and early 90s, Maureen, when Uh, a group of citizens went to the museum and said, hey, it's time to change the name, that it doesn't feel inclusive and it excludes so much of the population. And there were a series of debates in the community, letters flying back and forth in the Union Tribune, as you can imagine, both for and against. Uh, The museum surveyed its membership and also brainstormed probably a couple hundred names uh, that were possibilities for consideration and did all sorts of research and uh, in the end decided not to change the name. And I think that sort of the last uh, effort in earnest was in 1991 along those lines. Since that time, the selection has been made for Museum of Us. And I'm wondering why now? Why is now the time you've chosen to change the name? The world has changed a lot in the last 29 years, right? You know, massive upheavals in the way we communicate and relate to one another. And um, the museum had considered changing its name in the over the past couple decades. But 
my board in earnest about three years ago decided that it was time. And we started down a path of our own and started with a large number of stakeholder groups where we brought different folks together and asked them about uh, what they thought of the name change idea and possible contenders. And again, we brainstormed about 200 or maybe even 300 names. And out of those stakeholder groups, there were about five or six that kept rising to the top. And we ended up doing uh, extensive testing in the community on those names. Uh, we did a survey that we uh, submitted to about 15,000 people and got many, many responses. And then we did a uh, installation in our rotunda where we asked visitors to chime in on the different names. And uh, while we still thought the name change was about three, four, or maybe even five years out, when we were forced, forced to close our doors uh, in mid-March, uh, we really focused on how do we use this time to become a better version of ourselves when we get out the other side. And I made the case to the board that now was the time that the world was in such a, a process of change and people were open to new ideas. Uh, and there was just so much going on that it would be the perfect opportunity to approve a new name. And so at our June board meeting, the board did. How does the name change reflect a new mission for the museum? Well, our mission at the museum has been inspiring human connections by exploring the human experience for the last uh, 10 years or so. And it has led us down a path of a very different kind of museum than decades past. We have brought to the community all sorts of cutting edge exhibits that are really about what it means to be a human today and how we make meaning out of the world. One of the major areas of focus that the museum has taken on is its anti-racism work through an exhibit called Race, Are We So Different? And uh, that has been a permanent installation for the museum for many years now. And it led us to do an enormous amount of soul searching and looking at our own past and um, trying to carve out a better future. And a, a component that emerged out of that was our work with Native American groups, in particular and indigenous peoples, to really reflect on the history of how the museum and other museums like ours have treated indigenous peoples. It's led to our decolonizing work, uh, which really tries to carve out a new relationship with indigenous communities, one based on respect and dignity and really focusing on humanity and bringing folks together. And um, the name really reflects uh, a journey we've been on. And um, the name change is an important step in that journey. Uh, we've come a long way, but we also know we have a long way to go. Can you describe how the effort to decolonize is translated into what people will see at the Museum of Us? How has it changed some exhibits that maybe San Diegans are familiar with? One of the things that it has really changed is the items and belongings that are on display. For many years, the museum uh, unwittingly, perhaps, uh, put on display items that were sacred and ceremonial in nature that from the perspective of the in indigenous community were never intended to be seen by uh, anybody other than the individuals in that community that were meant to interact with those, those objects and belongings. Um, so that's a very significant step we've taken is really overhauled everything that we've had on display and removed them from public viewing if it's not appropriate. Visitors also see a huge shift in our language that is in the exhibits and installations. 
in the past, we have often used language that is quite honestly demeaning to indigenous peoples and doesn't um, recognize that they are alive and well and thriving and challenged in, in many ways, just like any group. Often the ways that we had displayed or represented indigenous peoples in the past that they were a um, static peoples frozen in time. And we have really shifted from that. So we are, are engaging in, in all sorts of new language in our exhibits. That includes truth telling about the past and some of the atrocities that occurred owning those, uh, those acts and you know, trying to move on in a much better way in partnership with those communities. Have you gotten any negative reaction, let's say from donors or longtime supporters about the museum's name change and the museum's new direction? We have had some negative reaction. There are some donors and supporters who have struggled with our new direction and new name, but I will say that those numbers have really been dwarfed by the number of people who are absolutely thrilled that such an iconic institution in San Diego is really taking a step forward in a way that is consistent with its values. And I think in a way that is consistent with the values of the community in many ways. We are really a place where our goal is to bring people together and to help them see their shared humanity and the ways that we're more alike than different in the hope that when there are difficult conversations to be had, whether it's about race, or the relationship with native and indigenous peoples or other challenging topics that we can find common ground and agree to disagree, but do so in a respectful way and hopefully learn something from each other in that process. What are your hopes for the Museum of Us? How do you see it continue to evolve as a cultural force in San Diego? You know, I hope that the Museum of Us is a place where people can come and connect with the best version of ourselves. That it, it's a place that brings out the best of who we are, but it also helps us see the best in other people. And it helps us see the world through, you know, walk a mile in another's shoes, essentially. That it's a place where people can um, sit in generosity and not in judgment, bring a curiosity to understanding different people and their worldviews and why they have come to see the world that way. And ultimately, come together at this divided time when we need places like the Museum of Us more than ever. I've been speaking with Micah Parson, CEO of the Museum of Us in Balboa Park. And Micah, thank you so much. My pleasure, Maureen. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.